this is something I would want to use not as a showcase, a sort of hack and use for a framework, but this is something actually that might be part of my daily life if I'm using Mastodon. Hello, welcome to PodRocket, a web development podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket combines session replay, error tracking, and product analytics to help software teams find and solve issues and improve conversion and adoption. You can get a free trial at LogRocket.com. My name is Noel, and today we are welcoming back Daniel Rowe. How's it going, Daniel? Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, we had Daniel on a few months ago at this point. Daniel, as a member of the Nux core team, he's been working on Elk, which is what we're going to focus on talking about today. Before we do too much, can you give us a brief synopsis overview of who you are and what you're working on? So my name is Daniel. I live in the, the UK, so I live in the northeast in the countryside. as a like a wood on the other side of the house, so it feels a little bit idyllic. It's a lovely place to be. Um, and yes, I'm an open source maintainer. I'm sponsored, which is incredible. So I basically get to to contribute to open source full time, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's the dream, right? What have you been focused on specifically since we had you on last? Well, one of the things, obviously, that is on my mind is Elk. Elk is a client for a social network called Mastodon. Mastodon is a little bit like Twitter in some ways, so it lets you post small updates with images, a text. And you can follow other people, and you can see their updates as well. You get notifications. There are direct messages. So there are a lot of things that might be familiar to you if you're coming from Twitter, as I certainly was. Mastodon's a bit different at the same time, so it's decentralized. So it's a bit like email in a sense. It's not that there's one single server like Twitter. Everybody's tweets are on Twitter. But with Mastodon, people can have different servers. It doesn't change how you follow people. Just like email, you can email anybody no matter what server they're on. And you can, in Mastodon, follow people no matter what server they're on. But the server you're on does give you some great quality of life things like spam and moderation um, support and a, you know, a community of people as well. But yeah, so Mastodon is a decentralized Twitter. And obviously a lot of people over the last year have been making their way to Mastodon. I think in many cases, people are, are doing it. They've either ditched Twitter entirely because either as a statement about what Elon Musk is doing there, or they've decided that it would be probably for the best to have a backup plan <laughs> and to connect with people they care about somewhere that is not going to be switched off accidentally one night because the server didn't look that important. So I think there's been a huge, huge influx and interest in Mastodon over the last year. I think probably particularly since September, October last year. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's a steady, a steady stream of exiles from, <laughs> from the twi- Twitterverse making their way across to Mastodon. And Elk is a client for that. So the default uh, Mastodon experience, Mastodon is, is a Rails app. It ships with a, a web UI, which is maybe a little bit unfamiliar or, or foreign to people. And for a while, the Mastodon project has wanted to invest time in improving that. But, but yes, Elk is a different uh, UI. It's a different client for it. I think it is kind of worth mentioning a lot of these um, more federated platforms like this new era. I don't want to use like terms like Web3 because everyone's like, you know, got all these knee-jerk cryptocurrency reactions and stuff like that to these new kind of federated things that are not necessarily tied to the web. But I feel like they often go hand in hand um, 
with big open source projects because the same mantra is driving a lot of the people that are motivated into these spaces. So it's cool to see these big, these, I don't know, these projects come out where it's like we're firing across the whole board here. Like we have backends that like open federated, anyone can participate in the network and like these, the cool UIs are all fully open source versus the opposite end of the world where Twitter controls everything and shuts down third party clients as rapidly as they can. Is very much the case that you do see this sort of overlap with similarity with open source and the sort of open web. It's not in the control of a single company and it's hackable. So a lot of people like the idea of being able to tinker. Well, something like Mastodon is great for tinkering. You can actually see the source code, see what's working. You can try and fix it. You can make a PR and then it's fixed for everybody else as well. So, you know, that appeals to the bit inside of me that loves, you know, the, the open source core, right? The, yeah. the idea that this is, anybody can look and make it better. It's almost kind of a requirement, right, for these kind of like federated services of this nature, right? Like they need to be tinkerable and extendable mm. and like people need to, be able to go in and get their hands wet, I think, or their feet wet rather to see how things work. And I, there's, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a whole like philosophical tangent we could go down here about like, you know, why these things are, but there's also kind of a, a pragmatic nicety to these services too. And that like, um, for we're recording, it's the, it's the sixth today and Twitter had their like hour long outage this morning where there was, I think the latest was that it was like the URL shortener tokens were like out, like the internal service that was like doing the URL shortening was like failing for their own resolvers when you just hit like twitter.com. That was a particularly embarrassing one, actually. All the images posted at a certain point in time stopped working. And then, yes, clicking links in tweets led you to a, a JSON response that just said something <laughs> like the API plan has not been authorized. <laughs> <laughs> it's particularly embarrassing. embarrassing. But I, I, I guess all of these little signs of things not quite working, it's not that any one bug is with Twitter. It's not that any one bug is a sign of anything. You know, we've all faced bugs. But I think it feels like this is an inevitable consequence of some of the decisions that have been made. You know, a sort of disregard maybe for the work the engineering team have done over the years. That kind of thing, I think. So, mm -hmm. so something like this happens and, you know, there, there are a chorus of people saying, on the one hand, well, you know, Elon's unplugged server. And people, on the other hand, saying, well, you know, if you don't move fast and break things, you won't make anything better. And I think surely there is some kind of room in the middle to say the way things have gone at Twitter has been callous, very cruel at times to people, and probably also... <laughs> extremely foolish in terms of uh, in terms of business decisions starting with a purchase of Twitter. But I'm not particularly aiming at making any kind of big points like that about Twitter. I think um, the reason why you might enjoy Mastodon is uh, the same reason you might enjoy Twitter. It's mostly about the people and the people you get a chance to talk to and engage with. For me, a big part of that is discovering new things I wouldn't know otherwise. So hearing what people are working on, seeing what they're doing. And a lot of people are on Mastodon now. And so if you want to talk to them and hear from them, learn from them, then Mastodon is a good place to be. I'll be on Mastodon. I'll also be on Twitter. And I think probably a lot of people will be the same because now Mastodon has enough of a gravity of its own that it's someplace you need to be if you want to be listening to those people too. Yeah, I feel like there was an inflection point of some kind where it was like, you started seeing people link to their Mastodons in a way that I had seen it before, but it was kind of like, 
tech people or people who were adjacent to the space already. Like they'd have them, but it was kind of like they were, you know, trying to get a thing going versus just like in the wild. It's like, oh, their Mastodon is their first social link. It was just a cool moment, I think, that we kind of collectively had there. So tell me more about Elk. Like what kind of motivated you guys to build a client? What did that entail? And how's the journey been? So the motivation, it was interesting. So Anthony, who's also on the next core team, DM'd a group, group message saying, hey, I, I think it'd be a good idea to build a client for the Mastodon in Nuxt. And got some good thumbs up. Thing. Everything was going Mastodon, right? So there was this sort of big push. Oh no, what's happening with Twitter? Look at Mastodon again. Like many people, I already had an account, but it wasn't where I was active. So a couple of days later, Anthony sent me an invite to the repository, which was Antfu slash Nuxtodon. So naturally, that was a great, great name, obviously. So, so I joined, and there were a couple of things there. And then over the next few days, particularly, I think Matthias Capaletta from the Core team was particularly <laughs> active, and I was seeing all kinds of stuff happening, and Anthony was throwing things up there. And actually, I think Kevin, probably. Anyway, the four of us started doing much more in terms of building things out. And I think I was probably doing the least of all of the four. But we basically started building out this client. And at some point, we even thought, hey, we shouldn't call it Nuxtodon. It's not a showcase for Nuxt, which I think was how we originally thought about it. Anthony was thinking, hey, every framework could have their own and just show how it works. But at some point, we thought, no, this is an app in its own right. This is something I would want to use not as a showcase, a sort of hack and use for a framework. But this is something actually that might be part of my daily life if I'm using Mastodon. And so we picked the name of an animal that was around at the same time as Mastodon, elk. Although elk survived. Elks, yeah. elk still live in the world today. Mastodon is not. It's good. Yeah, it rolls off the tongue. It's nice, easy to remember. It's great. So yeah, and basically we kept it private. And we basically said, if you want to help, let us know. And we'll send you an invite. And people, goodness, people let us know. As in, we got hundreds and hundreds of people. And Matthias was giving access one by one. I mean, well, I guess we all were, but giving access to people one by one, saying, you know, here's a Discord, private Discord link. Here's a, the Git, GitHub org. And Git, GitHub were fantastic. They let us do that as a mm. private. You know, we weren't, we weren't paid, but they unlocked some features. They were amazing. Nice. And so we brought people in and people were contributing. And it, it's amazing it worked as well as it did. We had, before we even went public, we had over 130 contributors. And that's not people with access. That's people who touched the code base. That's yeah. incredible. Mm-hmm. And basically, I think it sort of captured all of our imaginations. Here is a social media client that we want to have. And just out of the gate, it was already beautiful. It was clean, elegant. It was understandable. If you weren't used to Mastodon, that was okay because it, it made sense using UI primitives that people might understand. Not unique to Twitter, but you know, across a lot of the web icons and UI elements that just seem to work. And with the plus that actually anything about it could be improved and was you could talk about it, we could have a little discussion, you could submit a PR and it would be done. And uh, I, should, I should say, Matthias, who is employed by Stackblitz, to work on open source, but he also pulled a few strings for us, and we got access to something called CodeFlow from StackBlitz, which basically meant we could give one-click access to people making PRs. So people could come to the repo, click a link, and would fire up the repository in their browser, create a PR for them, open the app, and then they could make changes, and they would be sort of immediately updated in the browser for them in the app, 
then they could just commit them and make the PR all without having to clone anything locally. So that was a very, very nice feature, and people started getting involved. People who had no experience with Nuxt, no experience with Vite. Some people didn't have any experience with Vue, and they were getting in and making changes and improving it, which was really, that's open source collaboration at its best, I think. Just a quick pause here to remind you that PodRocket is brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket can help you understand exactly how users are experiencing your digital product with session replay, error tracking, product analytics, frustration indicators, performance monitoring, UX analytics, and more. Machine learning algorithms service the most impactful issues affecting your users so you can spend your time building a better product rather than hunting through tools. Solve user-reported issues, find issues faster, and improve conversion and adoption with LogRocket. I feel like kind of that breaking down those barriers to entry on open source projects. So it's one of those things where like as the core team, people that have been in the ecosystem and maintaining projects for a while, I think it's easy to forget just how intimidating and arduous even sometimes it is to get into a new tool set one's not familiar with at all. Just like little things that can trip you up. So I feel like these tools and products that are helping break those barriers to entry down are super cool to hear about. And a lot of the contributors that we were having at this point were people in the ecosystem as well. So people completely new, but also people who are building libraries in the Vue, Vite, Nuxt ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the author of a plugin called Vite Plugin Inspect um, got involved and added a PR, and suddenly you could, in your browser, click on any part of the app, and it would open the component in your IDE was responsible for that part of the app, which is, again, amazing if you're a new mm -hmm. contributor. Like actually, you don't have to understand how the code base is even structured in order to figure out how to make a change that's going to affect something locally. And, and others, too. So uh, the author of the plugin uh, PWA got involved, built a PWA plugin for Nuxt, module for mm -hmm. Nuxt. A nice. core contributor to Tauri, which basically creates native apps that wrap web applications, but with more native features, and it's totally tiny and built in Rust, which obviously is enough goodness to get you excited, I hope. <laughs> but he got involved as well. And suddenly we had a native port of Elk going on. The author of the Nuxt internationalization module got involved, and we started oh, seeing cool. bug fixes and performance fixes coming along from there as well. And so many more. Aquium from the Vue core team, again with a couple of libraries of his own, like Really, it was so exciting to see these things happening. And both like the advance in Elk, but also the advance in the ecosystem. So things that were being fixed or implemented or features added because there was this feeling of we're all moving forward. Mm -hmm. And we need these features. It's for a real app and we're building them in. That, I think, is how development goes really well in open source often. Uh, when you have this sort of sense of these things are being used, this is for a purpose. Yeah, it helps. You know, when you, when you have users clamoring for things, it's a, a well of motivation and energy. Sometimes it, it feels like, right, like people are asking for this demanding. It's like, okay, it's easier for me to put in an extra hour at the end of the day to get something knocked out if I know there's like 200 people that are like watching some comment, request for change, issue report, whatever it is, that are like eager to see something implemented or resolved or whatever it may be. I guess, why is Nuxt a good fit for? a Mastodon client? Like why, as a framework, does one need more than just Vue? So I should say probably you can create a Mastodon client and pretty much anything that you want to do to build it in. 
But I mean, I do think Next obviously has some good things under the hood going for it. So part of it is the speed of development. So there are a lot of conventions that are in place that just dictate how the sort of best easy course is to build. So you've got things like auto-importable composables that you can use throughout your app, a component structure. You create your components in a components folder, and again, those get auto-imported wherever you use them. And the sort of name of the component is based on the name path of the, like the directory and then the file name. So again, you have very sort of normal uh, patterns for figuring out, okay, where is this component coming from? And that also means that when you're actually looking at the business logic of your code, it's not 20 import statements. It's actually just the logic in the component. Everything else is click-throughable and fully typed, so like, you don't lose anything. Hmm. But it's much clearer and cleaner as to what you're, you're working with. For this, we also needed a server component because we're an OAuth app and we need to get an OAuth secret and authenticate, like generate callback URLs. And although we, we don't store any of that data ourselves, it's all in the user's browser, we still need to be an OAuth client or every single user authenticating with a server would create a separate OAuth app, and that would be a nightmare for the server admins. So um, obviously, Nuxt has Nitro built in, and we were able to handle all of that there, and which also meant we were able to handle, uh, again, built in to Nitro was the ability for us to use a provider-agnostic storage solution, KV Storage. So we can store all of those keys and values for OAuth secrets and other metadata Mm -hmm. in a way which actually works wherever you deploy it. So um, we, we deploy to, to Netlify, and we currently use Cloudflare KV storage to handle that data. But somebody else can come along and deploy Elk somewhere else entirely. They could deploy it to Versal. They could use something else. They could deploy it to Node Server, Docker file, and use the file system. Sure. And none of that requires code changes to Elk because it's all provider agnostic with Nuxt. I guess that's another point as well. So it's, we use serverless functions, and again, we don't have to configure or set that up and just works differently with Vessel or Netlify or Cloudflare or Docker or whatever you do. Mm-hmm. Creating integrations like the PWA module. We built, I think, 10 different modules. We use more than that. And so adding features is really nice workflow. You build a module, you abstract it, you publish it as an NPM package, and you can build local modules in your project as you go, which we've done. So it basically has meant we can iterate really, really quickly as we go. I'm curious on that, the serverless, the, I guess really any, whatever, whatever the, the backend, the server component may be. You said you guys are using like Cloudflare's key value for all the cool niceties that it brings you. But if one is deploying it somewhere else or wants to deploy it on some platform that hasn't been considered yet, how, like how do those abstractions look? How would I, you know, if I, if I wanted to go clone the repo and deploy on some kind of weird bespoke serverless in some serverless hosting environment. Like, how do I do that? Well, all of these features are Nitro-powered. The serverless, anything server-related will be Nitro-powered. Sure. And uh, Nitro is fully extensible. So it comes with presets, presets like Versal and Netlify, Cloudflare, Pages, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But all those presets are just collections of option, options. So you can create your own collection of options. You can even package it up as your own preset and use it. So often a preset will come with an entry, which is a runtime code, which uses the underlying primitives Nitro gives it to create an interface for the provider. So on Cloudflare, for example, it's a very, very different shape from a node 
base. Right. But both the Cloudflare entry point and the Node entry point use the same underlying nurture primitives to handle the request and return a response. And that's all powered by the H3 framework, which we built for Nitro for Next. And so it wouldn't be that difficult. So just the other day on a stream, probably in less than an hour, I built a new preset, Nitro preset for Legon, which is a new runtime, open source runtime built on Rust, which is really cool. We deployed it and immediately started getting less than 40, 40 millisecond round trips for server rendered Next app, which is very, very, very nice. And they actually just announced a new new website recently but so it would be very easy i think if you wanted to deploy somewhere else for you to to do that and the same is true with like a different storage provider if you wanted to do that too um again um unstorage ships with presets you can write your own we did that for um elk even we built a couple of presets to handle situations that weren't covered by unstorage natively and then made prs back to add them back into unstorage do you know are there many other big elk deploy i don't know deployments feels like a weird word but i feel like that's fine like elk deployments that you know of or is it mainly the one you guys are maintaining no there's some pretty big ones actually and it was amazing to see some of the ones so there are eight that we have listed in our readme of um uh, big deploys and seven of those are actually particular mastodon instances which i think <clears throat> the very first one was universodon well i could be wrong about that but yeah, so that's available for their, their users. Some of them actually, it's sort of prioritizes their users. So when you sign in, you only sign into that server. Others of them are more like Elk, and you can sign into any server, no matter where it's being hosted. But yeah, we have a pretty vibrant ecosystem, and, and people also hosting their own too. So I couldn't say how many users of Elk there are. All we know about are the ones on Elk, Elk.Zone, which is the sort of instance we administer. Yeah, I think maybe it's worth uh, kind of elaborating a little bit here for people that aren't familiar with Mastodon. So like like we were saying before, Mastodon's federated. So most Mastodon users aren't running their own Mastodon instance. They are like members of them, just like most people aren't running you know, their own email server. They've like signed up for some other email provider that's managing it for them. Mastodon's kind of the same, same thing. But with Elk, you can point the Elk client at, I guess, again, depending on the version, but the hosted official version we were just talking about, you could point that at any or most providers, I would imagine, would be playing nicely. Exactly. And it's a lot nicer experience than setting up a custom email provider, to be honest. Custom email provider, you have to sort of figure out how it connects, what's the protocol, what's the port. And with Mastodon, it is just you type in your server, and it redirects you there, and you click authorize, and then it redirects you back and you're logged in. So it's a very seamless OAuth flow. But yeah, you just type in your instance, your server, and we, we've tried to make some quality of life improvements there as well, because it can feel that even that is a little bit weird. Mm-hmm. So if you start typing something, a known server will autofill it for you. Oh, cool. So what do you think is motivating these other um, big deployments, especially those that are tied to a specific Mastodon instance? Do they just kind of want that to be the de facto UX for their users, and they feel like that's the best way to get it to them? Or what do you think is the motivation for these people? I think it's because they like it. So it's, <laughs> it's a very... It's a good answer, very, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, think, I think basically the admins of these instances are, this isn't a money-making enterprise for most people. They're doing this because they value Mastodon, they value the community, and they do their best for their users. 
And again, it can be expensive to run a server. With the federated approach to Mastodon, each server has its own copy of everything that it knows about. So if you post an image to Mastodon, then that image will get stored in every single server that uh, federates with you, you, which knows anything about your post. The same is true with metadata. So if you crawl a web, if you post a link to something, there'll be a little preview image. And again, every single server that, that knows about that post is going to download that preview image. And then mm-hmm. there's all the jobs to make sure that those images are up to date. And there's a lot that a server ends up having to do. And there's a lot that a server admin ends up having to do. The worst bits, of course, are to do with people, uh, probably um, moderating content that shouldn't be out there. Right, right. But but yeah, these these server admins they do it because they love the people, they love the community, and I think that's why also they make Elk available because it's something maybe they've enjoyed or appreciated or they think that it would benefit or be nice for people who are using their servers. And honestly, that's been lovely to see as well. See people pick it up and use it because they like it. Is there any maybe liberties with kind of the Mastodon data model or the abstractions? I guess the API of Mastodon that Elk takes specifically or is it all pretty like standard for this is how a mastodon client typically functions so so yes there is this api that exists out there and we've been using a great api layer again created in javascript uh, it's called masto.js which is great so basically that abstracts the interface with mastodon so any mastodon server should work fine There are different versions out there in the wild, so you might have an older one or a newer one, and that will affect maybe exactly what some what features might be fully supported. But that's probably true anyway, Mm -hmm. whether or not you're using Elk. And um, it's even true that there are other Mastodon-like or Mastodon Mastodon-like servers or Mastodon forks out there. Mm. So the things like MISKey and CalcKey and uh, lots of other things that sort of expose a Mastodon API. And so we can often work with those too. And people who want to use those will create issues and try and make it work, which is great. So that works for a lot more than just Mastodon. That's all happening at the API level. So often people might know that Mastodon is based on ActivityPub, which is a protocol for publishing and subscribing to content from individuals or from different sources, basically. And Elk doesn't really operate at that level. It just consumes the APIs that the server exposes, Mm. the server being the thing that under the hood will use ActivityPub to federate content. Cool. So when you guys are, um, or when you were setting out, or even now, what are the other players in the space that you kind of look to and are, are collaborating with and gleaning from? So one of the great early players, it was Pinafore. Pinafore was, I think, fairly recently stated that they would not be maintained, which was mm-hmm. sad to see. But Pinafore would definitely be one. There are some others, of course, as well coming out at the same time because lots of people had similar ideas. Yeah. So there are lots, lots that are not open source. So you can download apps on your phone. So there's Mammoth and Ivory and, goodness, there are just so many different apps out there. I mean, we have a PWA that is installable on your phone as well. So mm-hmm. some people would use that. Some people will use one of those those mobile apps or something else. But we're trying to explore questions like, how do you display a thread in Mastodon? Right. What should it look like? Because by default, 
on Mastodon, you see, there's no algorithm. There's nothing that curates your feed for you, which, you know, is a plus and a minus as well. On Twitter, the, a, a big negative is that often you don't see posts from people you care about, and instead you see some ad right. or some post that you've seen, some tweet you've seen 20 times and you know, and for some reason it's showing to you again, right? So you, that you have that frustration. But also, there's a lot of care in terms of, okay, this new post, the tweet is out there, but let's show some context. These are some older tweets that are not recent, but they'll help you understand this new one. You know, so there's a lot of, of curation going on, but the Mastodon API doesn't do that. It just shows mm. a chronological, like, here are the most recent updates from your network. But there are things we can do to make that better. So, for example, if you're scrolling down, you probably don't want to see latest update in a the thread, then the one up before that, then the one before that, then the one before that, because right. in reverse chronological order, it doesn't make sense mm-hmm. for you to read a thread that way. But it might make sense for you to see other things that way. If something's generally more recent, you do want to see that. So we've done a number of things like rethinking threading and figuring out how to reorder threads so it makes sense. And notifications, rather than everything just coming through as a separate line, can mm-hmm. we batch and group them and then actually make it easier to if you just had 20 people follow you because you, I don't know, have joined Mastodon and, you know, maybe you do want to have that, a group of little pictures of people who followed you rather than just seeing, or if people, those of you who have liked your post, maybe it makes sense to group those rather than show them one by one. So yeah. again, trying to figure out some of those and different clients, different apps, take different solutions to that. So we, we do all seek inspiration from each other on the best way of doing that. Nice, awesome. Yeah, I'm glad you got into that a little bit. That's kind of what I was trying to suss out with my, like, what the API layer question, like, what do you guys have to implement, you know, versus what is part of the spec, just because I haven't gone under the hood to that degree. So yeah, it's cool to hear. It's it's interesting, at least, to hear some of those kind of more UX, like, you know, not just like making it look pretty, but actually, like, how does this function, like, the the functionality of the UI is going to dramatically impact how users interact with this system. Is there anything, I guess, in particular that is exciting for you on the horizon or in the future for Elk? Are you guys just looking for more users, hoping to see it grow? Like what's what's motivating you and keeping you interested at this point? So I think the key thing for me is just, is this going to be a good experience for me to use? So very selfish. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's the, the key thing. The aim isn't, ever to have adoption for adoption's sake, right? So I'm not raising funds, I'm not got any VCs to satisfy. This is purely a project for the good of the people who use it. That's so if if it makes your life better, that's great. And that's what we're aiming for. And if it's doing that, then it's, it's doing what it needs to do. Some big milestones coming up. I think some interesting things to look forward to in the next, in the next month will be um, the release of Elk as a next layer. So you can actually extend it So rather than installing it, like cloning it from source or having your own fork, you'll be able to add it as a dependency in your package and actually extend it by just replacing a single component or adding a new page or dropping in your own module or something like that. And that is a really, really nice feature unlocked by Nux3, which basically means you can compose an app from a number of other apps or or just, just one or two. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think, will mean people can play with and tinker and extend it a lot more easily. So that will definitely be worth 
having a look when that comes out. And that's also, I've been implementing that locally. And I think that will also push forward some of the extend support in in next three as well nice good one for for tinkerers is there any anything else you want to call out or mention direct listeners towards so one interesting thing i i can't remember if i've i've mentioned this before but there's a project i've been working on for a little while called magic regex so do check that out if you haven't come across it before it's a natural language way of writing regular expressions oh cool um, uh, but it, it all compiles out into normal regular expressions when you build your project. It's type safe and brings some nice quality of life improvements. And in terms of detecting errors that you'll experience at runtime, practically at the type level when you're using your regular expressions, that's been a fun project to build. Yeah. Well, again, it's been a it's been a pleasure, Daniel. Thank you so much for coming online and and chatting with us. Yeah, it's a delight. Thanks for having me. <laughs>